scripture and this fourth time won't be the last time. Acts chapter 15. together. Father, we are just so very grateful for this Lord's Day. We are grateful that as we gather together on this Lord's Day, we are reminded that you are our creator, that everything that's here is here because of you, and that you are our sustainer, that you hold all things together. That in your common grace towards all, you take care of the world. We are reminded of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we are grateful for that this morning. And in a special way, Father, we're also very grateful as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. So God, as we begin our time together in the word our prayer is very very simple God may all the things of this world fade away every struggle every heartache every heartbreak every battle with sin God may you bring peace now as your word goes forth and may your spirit grant us illumination May your spirit grant us understanding of truth. And may your spirit help us know how to apply that rightly to our lives. Father, everything about who we are as individuals, as humans, cries out our neediness before you. And so, God, when we come together and look at your word, it is no different. You are our good shepherd. You are our great high priest Christ and so we pray that you mediate your word to us through the ministry of your spirit to our hearts Lord we love you Lord we praise you and Lord we thank you and we recognize we can only say that because you loved us first because you've extended your kindness to us so Father we thank you help us now help us to see Jesus and no other. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we return to our study of the book of Acts this morning, we find our way back to a very familiar chapter in Acts chapter 15. And you probably have a well-worn path now to Acts 15, which is a good thing. It's probably one of the most important chapters in all of the book of Acts. And in the unfolding plan of God's redemptive history, it's one of the most important moments that we come across in the life of the first century believers as well. Here's what we've learned so far in our journey. Last time we were in this passage of scripture, we learned that God providentially guides his people. And we saw that when Peter stood up in verses 6 and 7 and following and recounted how God had used him to take the Gentile the gospel and we've seen that in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 we saw how God used Peter we saw how God used others like Philip 
how God had providentially guided the gospel going to the Gentiles. We also have seen how God saves Jews and Gentiles in the exact same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The scriptures are very clear. There is only one way to be made right with the Holy God, and that's through Jesus Christ. We also saw that God unites Jew and Gentiles into one body, that because of Christ, all distinctions are gone. They've disappeared, and we are one body, regardless of what the ethnic makeup is of that body. We talked about how that unity that's in the body ultimately reflects the unity that we find amongst the Godhead. And we talked about how that raises the bar to the unity that we speak of in the church. That it's not just something we say, but it's something that we should strive for because we honor and glorify God as we are united around truth and the gospel and our God. Fourth, we also talked about how it's our responsibility to maintain or preserve the gospel. That would include both the content of the gospel and living the gospel, sharing the gospel, letting the gospel color every line and, and, and connect every dot in our hearts. We also talked about how the gospel is of first importance, like Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 15, when he said, I delivered unto you, which was of first importance, that Christ lived and died and was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. We talked about how we needed to have wisdom as a church family to, to navigate how we live the gospel together in community. And we needed wisdom when it came to separating out first level issues and second level doctrinal issues and third level doctrinal issues. And we talked, if you remember, how most of the time the disunity that comes in local churches is really over third level issues. They really don't matter that much, but the struggle is our own prideful, sinful hearts. We tend to elevate what we value more than anything else, and that just causes a lot of problems. So we needed to walk with humility. We really answered this question the last time we were together as well. How are the Gentiles saved? That was one of the big questions, if not the big question that they were wrestling with. How were the Gentiles saved? Were they saved differently than the Jews? And we've already talked about that, that they came to the answer that they're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, what's kind of been hanging out there, which we have not talked about, which we're going to start talking about today and Lord willing, finish talking about next week, is this question very important question that believers still get mixed up today and here's the question if you're a note taker what's the relationship between the law and the gospel as new covenant people what's the relationship between the law and the gospel as new covenant people and it's going to be my aim this morning to begin to answer that question we won't get to it all in fact, if we're honest, even if God is kind and we're able to gather next week, two weeks is not enough to answer that question either. But we will do our very best in two weeks. 
So look with me now in Acts 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 6. We're going to read all the way through verse 21. But the verse we're going to focus on this morning and next week is verse 10. So when we read verse 10, I want you to take special notice of what the Apostle Peter says there. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in their early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. All right, pay attention to verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Look with me now at verse 10. We need to consider the question, what is the relationship between the law and the gospel? Now, it's probably easy to read over for most of us, myself included, but I want you to notice verse 10 with fresh eyes, even though we've read it once. And I want you to notice in verse 10 the significance of the question that Peter asks. I want you to know, notice the, the importance of the question. I, I want you to notice the seriousness of the matter at hand. Because when you look at verse 10, notice what he says. After having said that the Spirit cleansed them just like us. Look at what he says. Now, it's an attention grabber. Look at what I just told you. Now, I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to ask you. Now, therefore, look at what he says. Why are you putting God to the 
the test. And before we figure out what he means by that, let's just take a moment to, to just kind of state the obvious on what he didn't say. What he didn't say is, why are you putting all of us elders and apostles to the test? He didn't say that. Another thing that he didn't say is, well, why are you putting old Barnabas to the test? He didn't say that. He didn't say, why are you putting the church to the test? Spurgeon talks about flies of Beelzebub. I've got an ant of Beelzebub right now all over me, wrecking me. Anyway, he doesn't say that. He doesn't use any human terms. He doesn't talk about the temple. He doesn't talk about the church. He doesn't talk about the weather. He doesn't talk about anything temporary or, 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 or of this life. Anything transitory, he ta he takes this question right to God. Look at what he look at what he says. Why are you putting who to the test? God. Now, as good Bible students and good Bible scholars and, and, and disciples, we need to be asking ourselves, why would he ask that question? Why would he say that you're putting God to the test? What were they testing? They were testing the word. They were testing what God had already spoken. They were testing God's plan of salvation. They were testing the law. God had already spoken in the Old Testament. My goodness, we've seen it. Chapter after chapter, the apostles preaching the gospel, not from the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet. They are preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. God had already spoken about Christ in the prophets. God had already spoke about Christ in the writings. God had already spoke about Christ in the law. God had already spoke about Christ in the Old Testament. What were they ultimately testing? They were testing God's word. They were testing God's plan of salvation. I want you to think about this with me. Go to Galatians chapter 3. And while you're going to Galatians chapter 3, we probably need to remind ourselves the discussion at hand was in regards to circumcision and in regards to the law. Because in verse 1 of Acts 15, these men from Jerusalem said that these Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And then in verse 5 of chapter 15, they said that not only did they need to be circumcised to be saved, but they also needed to keep the entirety of the law. So that has to be contextually in our minds when we're reading chapter 15, verse 10. And when we think about what God is, what they're saying about putting God to the test. I want you to look at verse 21 with me. Galatians 3, 21. Notice what Paul says. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. <laughs> we need to read that with exclamation because it's with an exclamation point. Paul is saying, does the law matter? Is, is the law void? Is it contrary to the promises of God? No way, Jose, it's not. Why? Because it's the law that reveals the promises of God. And notice what he says next. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What's he saying? The law could save, God would have given us a law that could save. He's helping them remember what they already knew was true and what they had already been told. And so this test that they're putting God to, literally in the Greek, it's talking about a trial. It's talking about to prove something, whether it's good or whether it's bad. It paints the picture as if God is on trial for whether or not his word is true. Whoa. So you can see why Peter would be so passionate about what he's saying in verse 10. Is God on trial here? Paul is saying the law is not opposite to the promises of God. No way, Jose. Certainly not. Because if there was a law that could save, God would have already given us the law so that in verse 21, righteousness would be by the law. So if we're not saved by the law, the next logical question that we need to ask is, well, what's the purpose of the law? Drop down to verse 23, Galatians 3. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now listen to verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian. Some translations may say tutor. The original language says pedagogue. Our pedagogue. He is our pedagogue. Our tutor. Our guardian. Until Christ came. In order that, for the purpose of what reason? So that we may be justified by faith, made right with the holy God by faith. What? Not in the law, not in yourself, not in your own works, but in Christ alone. Now, we need to understand in verse 24 the significance of this word guardian, the significance of this word tutor, depending on your translation, the significance of the word pedagogue or pedagogue in the original language. See, it was common in Paul's day for a family to hire someone and put their children's education in the responsibility of that individual. And it was that individual's responsibility to make sure that those children got up on time, got fed on time, got to school on time, learned what they were supposed to learn and know what they were supposed to know. It was a little bit like me in high school when I struggled with algebra. Anybody relate? Anybody that brings back bad memories? I had to get a tutor. I had to have somebody outside of class time because when I studied algebra, it was like Chinese for me. I didn't know. You like that, Ethan? Now, that doesn't justify the fact that you can't study algebra. I had to get a tutor to help me pass. That tutor's job was to take me back to the basics, take me back to the fundamentals, Take me back to the truth of algebra and help me pass my class. Paul is saying that the law was given to us to be like a tutor, to take us back to the basics, to help us understand something, 
to help us understand our need for someone and to help us understand where our true salvation comes from. To help us understand that God is holy. To help us understand that God is righteous. To help us understand that God is good. And when we look into the mirror of law of the law, we see that we are not good. We see that we are not holy. We see we are not righteous. We see that we are transgressors. We see that we are trespassers. We see that we are sinners. And we see that there is no righteousness or goodness in and of ourselves. We are left without hope when we look into the mirror of the law. And the only place that we can rightly look to is to Christ. It takes us like a schoolmaster back to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. In Galatians 3, 24, the law was our tutor. The law was our schoolmaster. The law was our pedagogue. The law was given to us to school us from a young age till we reach maturity to show us our need for Christ. By the way, as an aside, this is why the best witnessing tool you can use is the law. God in his wisdom gave it to us to use as a tool to show us our need for Jesus. Still applies today. We're justified by faith in Christ. And the law takes us to that. So when, go back to Acts 15. So when Peter says, you've just put God on trial. What are they, what are they putting on trial? Well, obviously the character of God, but what God has said that salvation would be by grace through faith. You need to understand this very carefully. That the unbelief that the children of Israel were condemned for in the Old Testament. Was not believing in the Messiah. That's the unbelief. Sometimes we get it confused. There's so many dates. There's so many places. There's so many pit stops. There's so many stories. There's so many verses. 39 books for crying out loud. It's a lot of material. How do I make heads or tails of all that material? Well, the unbelief is not believing in the Messiah. So every sacrifice, every feast day, every festival, everything that they were to do, even observing the Sabbath, was meant to be done in faith in the Messiah that was to come. That's why Paul would tell the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 17, that the substance of the law is Christ. Do you see how God, how good God is? Everything about from creation to Christ's coming were constant reminders of their need for Christ. But like us, their hearts were often hard, and like us, their hearts were often dull marked by unbelief. Acts 15 verse 20. We need to keep, excuse me, Acts 15 verse 10. We need to keep going. Why are you putting God on trial? Look at what you're doing, he says in verse 10. You're, you're, you're placing a yoke on the, the neck of the disciples that, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. There's an intentional word picture that Peter is using there to help them understand the significance of the moment. The yoke was used, we know, to take two oxen or take two animals, to put them together, to couple them together. So in agriculture, they would plow, they would accomplish a task, whatever it may be, hauling a tree out or, or whatever it was, clearing land. Either way, 
he's using this word picture that they would have understood. You have just yoked the law with the gospel, but not in the right way, instead in the wrong way. And you have just, look at what he says. Look at verse 10. You've yoked them and you've placed on them something that no one has been able to bear. Not us or our forefathers. It's interesting. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 11. Because Jesus speaks of his yoke. Uh, you already know where I'm going, don't you? Because Jesus yokes the law and the gospel the right way, not the wrong way. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. If you don't know Christ this morning, and if you're listening online and you don't know Christ this morning, don't yoke yourself to the wrong thing. Yoke yourself to Jesus. Listen to this invitation by Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We need a we need to pause there and, and think about this heavy ladenness, this this burden, this weariness is is, is is comes from a couple of things. One is just from living in a fallen world. Just the grind, the everyday getting up and thinking, man, could I just take a vacation? <laughs> could I just have a holiday? Could, could, I, could I just take a day off? No. I have to pay bills. I have to eat. It's just that grind. But then when we throw into the daily grind the fact that we get sick and we don't feel good. And then when we throw in that spiritual attack. And we can add on and on and on more things. Living in this world is not paradise, brothers and sisters. It is a wilderness. And then we could tap with that the failing to keep God's moral commands, our guilt before God, our condemnation before God. Jesus says, You come to me when you're burdened. Here's a promise. I'll give you rest. Now look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take off the yoke of the law. Take off the yoke of trying to be a good person. Take off the yoke of trying to be something that somebody else wants. Take my yoke, he says. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. Look at the promise. Until you do that, you'll never find rest for your souls. But when you do that, Jesus says, you'll find rest for your soul. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, this is what those that were proposing circumcision and keeping the law they didn't understand this is what paul is talking about in galatians chapter 3 when he says this is what the tutor does the tutor takes us to jesus and jesus will take away our burden and jesus will take away our guilt because jesus bore our wrath 
because he lived a life that we could not live and he died the death that we deserved and he was buried and he rose again and he sealed our salvation with his life's blood. That's the new covenant. Pretty awesome. Now, we need to do a little bit more work. Go back to Acts 15. This is why he concludes in verse 11. We've already studied it, but I do want to read it again. But if but we believe, Peter says, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The end of the law is Christ. The law shows us our need for Christ. The law shows us our need to repent before a holy and righteous God. And we've already read in Isaiah 45, 22, God is not silent and never was silent prior to the writing of the New Testament that he was the only way and is the only way to salvation. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, not just Jerusalem, not just Samaria, not just Judea, but everywhere, even in Okeechobee, Florida. Pretty awesome. Now, we have to think about a few things because we do need to understand that these Jewish believers that we've talked about in verses 1 and verses 5 and the things that they were saying, I think it would be wise of us to show a little grace. They are called believers by the apostles. And it's not our job to try to figure that one out. We can leave that with the Lord. Just like it's true for us. The Lord knows those who are His. But what we can say is that they were struggling with the relationship of the law and the gospel. And if you think about it for just a minute, it makes sense, does it not? It hadn't been long since Christ had died. It hadn't been long since in the upper room He changed the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate in just a minute. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body that was broken for you. And this is my blood that was shed for you. This is a symbolic representation of the new covenant. And I'm about to cut the new covenant with my life's blood. We do have to remember that all of the nation of Israel for a very long time have been operating under what we now know and call the Old Covenant. So these Jewish believers that were saying these things in verse 1 and saying these things in verse 5, they're just trying to figure it out. You've been there. I've been there. You ever wrestled with the sovereignty of God over all things? You ever wrestled with that? You ever said some goofy stuff before you really got to the truth? Or is it just me? Is it just me that was wrestling with the sovereignty of God and I said, okay, well, God, you're sovereign over weather. You're sovereign over creation. I don't know if you're sovereign over salvation. I don't know if I like that one too much. Then I had to figure it out by God's spirit and the word. And along that journey, to be honest, there were many times where I said some really I said some really goofy things that didn't align with Scripture, and I would like to say that probably we could show some grace 
Think about our own journey. Think about our own life. And these brothers that say these things in verses 1 and 5, though what they say is not right, they are trying to figure it out. They're just simply trying to figure out what's the relationship between the law and what's the relationship between the gospel. The right relationship between the law and the gospel. And let me show you. Go to Genesis 17. Let me show you what would have been in their background and of their mind. And you do need to understand that for the Jew, for the Jewish mind, this was in every Jew's mind when it came to the scriptures. Every one of them would have been thinking through this lens. And when you go to Genesis 17, we find a restating of the Abrahamic covenant. And not only do we find the restating of the Abrahamic covenant, but we see this is where God gives the sign of circumcision. So look with me at chapter 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Verse nine. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from every foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house, he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, this is really helpful because it lets us understand and lets us know that this is the lens by which these Jews were, were understanding what was going on. They were trying to figure out how in the world does Genesis 17 and the sign of the covenant apply to all these Gentiles that have come to faith in Christ. I mean, at this point, we need to admit that what they're doing, I would suggest is trying to protect the Gentiles at some level. 
we can be sincere, brothers and sisters, but we can be sincerely wrong. Amen. So just so that just because they meant well doesn't mean that they got the scriptures right. And that's what the Jerusalem Council was about. They were just coming together as elders, trying to figure out what is the gospel? How is a Gentile saved? And what's the relationship of the law and the gospel now that Jesus has, has ratified the new covenant? How does Genesis 17 apply? Well, let me talk to you about a couple of things very quickly. First of all, the covenant of circumcision was just, it was a sign of identification with God's people. That's what it was. I'm identifying with God's people. It was also a sign of identification with God's promises that I am placing my, my faith. And there's a lot we could talk about here, okay? That, that our faith is in the promises of, of God. It was also, and I think this is where these Judaizers, so to speak, kind of, kind of missed it. It was also meant to be a sign. It was also meant to be a help. It was also meant to be a physical sign in their very body of their need for the gospel, of their need for a new heart. Now, hear me carefully. Don't miss this. The physical location of the sign mattered as well. It did. Because I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Why there, God? Like, really? Couldn't it be some other way? The answer to that is, is no. Because what was promised in Genesis 3.15? The seed... And how was seed passed on through procreation? It was a physical reminder in a strategic place that there would be a seed that would come for God's people. This is awesome. This is a, a, a huge spiritual marker that everything about circumcision was about the seed that was to come. That I'm identifying with God's promises. I'm identifying with God's people. That I'm identifying with this seed that was promised to come. And it's showing me that just as there's a cutting away of the physical flesh. There needs to be a cutting away of my dead spiritual hearts. Go to Ezekiel 36. I know I'm running long. But the Lord has blessed us with a beautiful morning. Ezekiel 36. While I'm trying to find Ezekiel 36 and you're trying to find Ezekiel 36, let me tell you what Ezekiel 36 is about. It's a prophecy of the new covenant. <laughs> it's, a it's a prophecy of everything that we've been talking about all morning. Ezekiel 36, look at verse 26. Pastor Tom, it's hard to pick just one verse here. But verse 26 really gets at the matter at hand. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart in this new covenant. And I will, excuse me, and a new spirit I will put within you. Listen, I will remove 
the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Circumcision pointed to that reality. Go to Romans chapter 2 now, please. Romans chapter 2. Pastor Jim has done a, a wonderful job preaching through Romans for us. So I'm going to say that if you want to hear more exposition on this, then you can listen to Jim's sermons from the past. But I do want you to find your way to Romans 2, 28 and 29. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Huh. Oh, we can talk about there. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Huh. Sounds like Ezekiel 36, does it not? It was a physical marker to show us a spiritual reality. Here's the reality, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you understand? This is where they were trying to wrestle and figure it out. But this is the truth of the gospel. This is the truth of the gospel as revealed in the law. This is the truth of the gospel as revealed in the Old Testament. This is the truth of the gospel as revealed in the prophets. And I thought about this, Pastor Eric. These brothers that were saying these things in verse 1 and verse 5. They were really, where they went wrong is they were trying to get these Gentiles to identify as a Jew. Very simply, that's, I could have said that 10 minutes ago, couldn't I? But I wanted to show you from scripture, because that's more important. Your faith doesn't need to be built on what I say, it needs to be built on the word. That's really what they were doing. They were wrestling with Genesis 17, they were wrestling with what God said, and what they were really trying to do was to have these Gentiles identify with being a Jew. Because we read it in Genesis 17. The, the thing that we read there at the end of that passage was if, if, if you weren't circumcised, you'd be cut off from God's people. So you had to identify with God's people. God's people were Jews. And so that's what they were wrestling with. But here's what I want you to think about. We're not to identify with another ethnicity. Nowhere in scripture are we told to identify with another ethnicity for salvation. Who are we told to identify with? Jesus. And I'm going to prove it to you from the Old and the New Testament. Remember when the children of Israel were out in the wilderness? They were being bitten by snakes, fiery serpents because of their unbelief and disobedience and rebellion against God. And God in his grace told Moses to take a snake and put it up on a bronze pole and that everyone that looked at that snake would be healed. And if you fast forwarded to the New Testament, you would find that Jesus says that that bronze serpent was a type and a shadow of himself. 
and that all those that needed to be healed didn't need to be identified as a Jew. They needed to look to Jesus to be healed. What did we read in Isaiah 45, 22? What did God say? Look to me. Turn to me, all your nations. What did we read in Romans 2? Circumcision, true circumcision, is one inwardly. And a true Jew, whether Jew or Gentile, is one that's been circumcised at the heart level and been made new. We have to be careful that we're not putting God to the test by mishandling or lightly handling or wrongly handling the scriptures. Gospel matters. We need to be good students of the word. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want to encourage you to not identify with the wrong thing. You will not get to heaven by putting money in the offering plate. Don't identify with that. You will not get to heaven by becoming a church member. Don't identify with that. You will not get to heaven and be made right with a holy God by identifying with the Lord in baptism. There's only one person that you need to look to, and that's King Jesus. So my call to you this morning, we've seen it from the scriptures, it's plain as the nose on your face. Without Christ, you'll perish. But there is hope for people like us that need Jesus. Identify with the right person. Let's pray together. Father, I know this was a long message. But I thank you for blessing us with a beautiful morning. I thank you for the gospel. And I thank you for how you use your word and your spirit uses your word to help us navigate difficult things. Lord, I pray that in your kindness you give us next week so we can do more digging in what this yoke was. And that we can do more digging on a right understanding of the law and gospel. But if next week doesn't come, I pray for the one that needs to know you today. That today will be the day of salvation for them. That they will look unto you and live. And do that even now. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet as we worship the Lord through song. day that will be. 